I'm Jess. And I'm Tiff. And we're your Curious Cousins. Where we talk about everything kooky and spooky in the state of Oklahoma. Welcome to episode 44. Welcome. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Ready for a fun-filled holiday weekend. Yeah. Happy 4th of July, everyone. Yes. Happy Independence Day. Or as the British call it, Happy Treason Day. (laughs) (laughs) I saw a mean... I mean, I saw a meme the other day that said, I just heard a British person called Oreos chocolate sandwich biscuits, and I understand why the Revolutionary War had to happen. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) So, yes, we are getting ready to celebrate America's birthday. Any fun plans? Um... No, I think we'll have some friends over on the third. Uh, we usually have a big, it's usually my dad's side yeah. of the family's uh, reunion, family reunion. But we kind of did that over Memorial Day this mm-hmm. year. Instead, my cousin Rachel. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Rachel. Um, She is bursting. Got to have a baby. Yay. So she is unable to make it. And I will, you know, her dad and uh stepmom they're not going to be able to make it because they're going to spend some right. weeks with rachel right. after she has the baby so it's just going to be something small yeah. i need to call my dad and invite him and yeah i don't know if my sister's in town my sister's been working in new mexico and she was back for a week so i don't know at what point she was having to return or not so my friend bobby and his family are coming well, and my fun. friend gwen she's bringing her for babies with her and i think just something well, small this year yeah well that'll be fun so that's about it. What about you? We are, my parents and I are taking my niece, Ava, who has been on the show, yes. and hey, um, her brother, Tater. We're going to Branson. Mm-hmm. We have um, season passes to Silver Dollar City, so we're going to take the kids, and um, we're staying in like a cabin thing, mm-hmm. and um, we're going to go to... Dolly Parton Stampede on Wednesday. Ooh, and I've only been there once possibly, with you. <laughs> possibly the um, Titanic Museum, maybe. Ooh, Ava yeah. is dying to go, even though she's been mm-hmm. and has seen the re- well, like the real museum in Belfast. Yes. Not that the one in Branson isn't a real museum, but you know what I mean. The one yeah. in Belfast. So she's wanting to do that. And then uh, Tuesday, 4th of July, we're going to be at Silver Dollar City. Mm-hmm. And then probably see Aunt Kelly and, and everybody and then head home Wednesday. Nice. Very nice. So I think it'll be fun. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it will. Hopefully it won't be too hot. <laughs> <laughs> We're just baking. That's asking. Oklahoma. That's like, that's asking a lot for July, but. <laughs> right, right. But it is supposed to cool off by the end of the week. So by the time this yeah. comes out, maybe everybody will be enjoying some cooler weather. Yeah. So anyway, it'll be fun, I think, and. We'll see how it goes. Right. Exactly. Hope everyone has a safe yes, 4th of July. Yes, have a safe and fun 4th yeah. of July. I did want to say um, my children are playing in the pool behind us. <laughs> so if you hear screaming or splashing, it's okay. We, we don't have background music just yet. Of course, some people can hear the turtle Trickling tank. Trickling of the tr- turtle tank. Yes. But then also my husband on top of that is about to start mowing. So... It'll just be a background. Right. We're just kind of episode. Have real life taking place. Yes. So this is a dark history episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't care who goes first. Doesn't matter to me. I can go if you want. Sure. All right. Hit well, me with your best shot. I w- okay. 
<laughs> okay, so I am doing the Krebs, which I think is how you say it, yeah. the Krebs mining disaster. Never heard of it. I hadn't either until I Googled tragic disasters in Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> um, my sources are Development of Coal Mining in Oklahoma by Stephen L. Sewell from the Mining History Association. Krebs to Honor 100 Slain min- Miners by Bob Dosett from the Oklahoman. United States Mine Rescue Association. The horrifying mine explosion that haunts Oklahomans to this day from Only in Your State. Mine Explodes in Oklahoma from the History Channel and Coal Mining Disasters, Oklahoma Historical Society. So um, before we get into the actual disaster, I want to talk, I want to say a little bit, but it's kind of a lot about mining in Oklahoma. Just to kind of preface the, uh, what's the, what do I want to say? Just give us a little big to do. A background mm-hmm. knowledge that we yes. give us some background and knowledge. honestly, I could have spent a lot more time on this. There was so much information, and honestly, I found it fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest, I I'm from northeastern mm-hmm. Oklahoma, mm-hmm. so I don't know a whole lot about southeastern Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and. I didn't realize how big the coal mining community was down there. Oh, I, I, because when I think neither. of Oklahoma, I think of like the agriculture part of it mm-hmm. and the oil. Mm-hmm. Coal mining never even crossed my mind, even though we mm. have a town called Colgate. So, but there's Just, also toothpaste called Colgate. So you know. Well, <laughs> I don't think it's named after the toothpaste. <laughs> but anyway, so I just. I felt kind of dumb, maybe. Maybe not dumb is the right word, but I just felt very... You were uneducated um, in the history of coal mining in the state of Oklahoma. Yeah, because I didn't realize how prevalent it really was. I didn't either, so So you're about to enlighten me as well. I will. Hopefully hopefully you guys find it interesting. But anyway, so J.J. McAllister is the man that is recognized for the development of Oklahoma's coal mining industry. And when looking into literature about coal mining in Oklahoma, McAllister and his role in the origins of Oklahoma's coal industry, it's very, it's like surrounded in kind of like a mythical essence, so to speak. Like it's very like um, wrapped in folklore almost. And in many early histories of the state, they make McAllister out to be almost like some mythical creature almost. You know what I mean? Yeah. And one source said that after the Civil War, McAllister came to be in possession of a um, of a map that revealed the location of valuable coal deposits in the Choctaw Nation. Mm-hmm. He married into the tribe so that he could gain legal access to these deposits. Go figure. <laughs> he used his good luck and his business savvy in the mercantile trade and... Uh, he pretty much made a fortune. And even though the presence of coal in the region had kind of been known for decades, McAllister's contribution was that he was the first to find commercial markets for the product. Ah. Mm-hmm. So commercial exploitation started with the arrival of the railroads in Indian Territory. Okay. When McAllister learned that the MK&T Railroad, which is the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas Railroad, yes, uh, was considering building a track through 
quote quote they called crossroads which was where the california trail crossed the texas road okay he immediately displayed a wagon load of the area's coal to officials of the railroad at parsons kansas kind of like presenting it like Mm -hmm. look at this look at this high-end coal we have and so crossroads which would later become McAllister, oklahoma was where the the rising uh, businessmen had several investments. So, of course, he wanted them to come and build a track right through his region of wealth, I guess okay. is how we can call it. McAllister's plan was to persuade the railroad's management of the high-quality nature of the region's coal in the hope that it would tip the scale in his favor, kind of like I just said. And it was... An easy decision for the company's officials to make, especially with congressional subsidies and McAllister's tantalizing offer of this high quality steam coal, which this is right around the time where steam coal is used for steamboats, the railroad and in the homes, you know, so it was used for a lot of things. It was valuable, we'll say. The MKNT Railroad was the first to infiltrate the region and quickly dominated the Indian Territory coal industry, as well as controlling two of the largest mining companies in the Indian Territory. The railroad was part of a very complex web of railroads controlled by Jay Gold. So I think he kind of had somewhat of a monopoly on these railroads is what it sounded like. In the early 1870s, McAllister sold his Oklahoma mining company to a larger business, get this, that he and many of his partners founded. So he like sold it to partially himself right, and others. Right. And this this larger company was called the Osage, I'm oh, sorry, I said that so weird, was called the Osage Coal and Mining Company. And we want to remember this because this is going to okay, be important. Okay. So the Osage Coal and Mining Company developed mines at Krebs and McAllister. So the company sold its product to the Katy Railroad and had a virtual monopoly on commercial coal mining in Indian ter- Territory until 1881. So the second major coal producer during the 1880s was the Toka Coal and Mining Company, or also known as the ACNMC, which was also owned by Gold's Katy Railroad. Okay. Here's a cookie fact. Indian Territory coal production developed very rapidly in the 1880s. In 1881, when ACNMC was established, an estimated 150,000 tons of coal were produced. Cool. Wow. By 1887, mines in the Choctaw Nation were producing over 600,000 tons of coal yearly. Mm, Productions wow. totaled over three quarters of a million tons annually by the end of the decade. So it was a five-fold increase. Which is just crazy. Development of the Indian Territory coal industry continued on into the 1890s at just like a lightning pace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Many coal towns in Indian Territory were named after the owner or (laughs) operators of the coal of like the local mine. For instance, Haleyville, Dow, Wilburton, Adamson, Alderson, Phillips, and McAllister. I was going to say. Located on lands leased from the Choctaws. These towns were beyond the reach of the government for a lot of, in a lot of respects. It made the lands exempt from the federal government's laws and regulations. In Indian Territory coal towns, it was the coal barons who were the law. Would that probably have made them exempt from like 
Oh, obviously from federal taxes and things as well. Oh, I'm sure. They didn't really mention the taxes, but I you can guarantee that that's... I don't know if Indian Territory was ever taxed. I mean, I'm, I think it was because it would have been a legal territory of the United States, but... Yeah. So mine... Mm. Own, this <laughs> also um, caused mine owners... They were more concerned with profits than safety. Absolutely. So Oklahoma's coal belt stretches in an arc across the southeastern part of the state. Mm-hmm. The center of mining activity ran from, I believe, if I'm saying it wrong, someone please correct me, Lehigh, 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 to McAllister, then turned northeast to McCurtain. Now, there were a few exceptions, and one of the most significant was the Henrietta District, which produced oh. quite a bit of <laughs> that is kind of weird. coal in that region. Yeah. So Oklahoma miners, they worked three main types of mines. They worked in the strip mines when the coal seam lay just below the surface. Mm-hmm. And plows and scrapers first removed uh, the overburden ex- exposing the coal. The miners would then break up the coal with picks and shovels and load the coal into railroad cars. Or if it, for, if it was for industrial use, if it, they loaded it into wagons if it was for local use. Mm-hmm. The second is if the coal was too far beneath the surface for a strip mine, mine engineers would uh, sink a shaft to reach the coal seam. So it it was a shaft mine. And sometimes a shaft mine would reach about 600 feet underground. The third mine was a slope mine, which was used if the coal outcropped on a hillside. And miners would follow the coal seam as it went down and into the hill. And the slope mine is what was used the most in Oklahoma coal, in the Oklahoma coal belt. And that's mainly due to um, the hilly nature of the region and also because slope mines required less monetary investment than mm. a shaft mine. Mm-hmm. And um, because they're... Uh, the haulage expense for mines was for shaft mines was just super expensive. Right. Miners would use what was called the room and pillar system. Now I know you guys are probably like, gosh, get on with it. But all of this relates to what we're going to be talking about in a minute. You know, the science teacher in me is coming out. (laughs) And, um, because in fifth grade science, we do briefly cover fossil fuels and there are three types of fossil fuels coal oil and natural gas (laughs) and i often link that back because to matter to solid Mm -hmm. liquids and gases and that there are all three forms Mm -hmm. are found in fossil fuels um and so it makes sense now that you're talking about this (laughs) oklahoma has lots of oil we have lots of natural gas of course we would have lots of coal Mm -hmm. i mean honestly they're all roughly carbon based right and so we have and because oklahoma was once covered by vast oceans mm-hmm. uh yeah it makes sense that we would have a lot of coal yeah um so i was like you i knew nothing i did not ever consider oklahoma being a coal producer at right. one point in time well when i think of and, coal producing i think of like what like the midwest right the midwest. right the upper midwest mm-hmm. yeah um, definitely because, you know, I spent some time in Ohio and West Virginia and they're big coal miners there. Mm-hmm. And, um, I didn't, you know, I didn't think, but now it makes a perfect sense. I should say it <laughs> makes perfect sense that we would have coal here in this state. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So. Well, just bear with me. I, I know. No, 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 I know no, no, it's no. probably, no, no. 
I don't want the listeners out there to be like, this is so boring. What is going on? <laughs> no, no, this it is, is all relevant. Yes. It's all relevant, I promise. We have to get to the background before we can get to the good stuff. Okay, so miners would use what was called the room and pillar system, and they would open side tunnels that enter, like, this is if it was um, a shaft mine, I believe. Mm -hmm. So they would have the main entry, and they would open up side tunnels that veered off of right angles from the main entry. The rooms would then be cut into the coal seam, and then they would leave these huge pillars standing between um, rooms to provide, like, roof support. Which seems crazy to me. I don't. Okay. I don't like this because yeah. I don't like. I don't like to be put inside caves. Right. So <laughs> usually there would be two miners to a room, and they would then begin the process of blasting down and loading the coal. I don't like that. Into cars to for transport to the surface. So because of Oklahoma's thin coal seams, miners would undercut the coal using a pick. And this practice forced miners to work while basically lying on their sides. Nope, don't like and that either. a lot of times, it would be in standing water. Oh my gosh, like, I'm not scared of a lot of things, but... Well, and I'm going over this stuff just to know, like, how dangerous it was. Laying down in water. Back then. And you gotta remember, they didn't have electricity, so their headlamps were open flames. Keep that in mind. Probably burning coal of some sort so or, there are so many factors of how wax. dangerous this was or oil oh yeah and we're gonna get into all of that here in a minute so um undercutting was a time-consuming process and a lot of times it took anywhere between two or three hours after doing all of that they had to hand drill a powder hole and then this next part is important okay Miners would prepare a shot cartridge by wrapping a stick with pieces of newspaper, then removing the stick and filling the paper tube with black powder. The shot cartridge would then be placed on the end of a five-foot miner's needle, and I'm doing quotation marks here, a miner's needle. Don't know what that is, but a tool. And the miner would then insert the shot cartridge into the mouth of the charge hole. This was a very dangerous step. I mean, they're essentially playing with dynamite is what it sounds right, like. Because sometimes gas would collect in the charge hole and the act of inserting the cartridge drove gas out of the <laughs> hole and into contact with the miner's open flame lamp, igniting it. If everything went the way it was supposed to, the miner would then tamp in the cartridge with clay. Oh, my gosh. So then the miner would remove the needle and insert the squib, which was a portion of wax paper with a small amount of powder at its end that served as a fuse. That's what they look like. I had to Google Holy a picture Holy cow, for you. yeah. I no. Make, I had to Google a picture for her. No way. <laughs> we'll have to post that. Oh, man. So the miner would then light the squib and then get the heck out of Dodge as fast and safely as possible oh my gosh and as a result the blast would bring down a ton of coal oh so God. the miner would then clear away the rock and then lay down rails from the room up to the face of the coal seam and then he would then load the lumps of coal into the coal cars now here's what's interesting they had to place a tag on the car to inform the wayman above ground who was to um like the tag was had their name on it and it was so that the wayman would know 
who to credit the load to. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Beca- that makes sense. Because you were paid by the load. Okay. So coal companies paid only for lump coal, mm-hmm. sifting through screens before weighing. The practice of paying only for lump coal became a main offense of the miner strike that happened in like 1899 to 1903. Like it was a huge wow. issue. And um, a long strike. <laughs> it was. Until 1900, Oklahoma's miners worked an average of nine and a half hours a day. And they would work 250 to 300 days a year. Wages were around $2.50 per day. So in today's value, that would be $9.51 today a day. Woo! You can't even buy anything to eat at McDonald's for Mm -hmm. that. Many miners worked on a tonnage rate basis. And this was one of the main problems that led to many accidents because you're so concerned with getting that load of coal and getting your name on that load of coal to get paid more mm-hmm. that you're not really concerned with safety. Absolutely. So, you know, miners often ignored safety precautions because the tonnage rate was the basis of the wage system. Right. So that was that was a big problem throughout the whole this whole time. Mm-hmm. Oklahoma's coal mines during the early years of development had the highest death rate in the nation per million tons produced. We're number one. We're (laughs) number one. Yay on that one. (laughs) There have been 10 major disasters prior to 1914 that claimed a total of 300 lives. However, this number is deceiving because there have actually been over 700 miners that have died prior to 1914 and i'm sure that the number is actually much higher than that oh i'm sure the reason for this is because the term i'm gonna say quote quote disaster Mm -hmm. is misleading because um at least five miners had to have died in an accident for it to be called a disaster makes sense so most miners died either alone or in like groups of two or three pairs yeah and so that wasn't considered a disaster okay there were numerous ways for a miner to die or be injured in the mine um and well i said underground or shaft mines whatever you you know what i mean i I don't want to imagine it um part of those was having a carefree attitudes in the mine rock falls windy shots coal dust explosions and noxious gases were just a few of the dangers that miners faced now a windy shot happened when a miner used too much black powder or improperly tamped the charge down before setting off the explosion windy shots would like spew sparks into the mine frequently igniting methane gas coal dust or both and this led uh to a far larger and uncontrolled explosion oh my gosh and these explosions could travel through miles of tunnels and kill and main miners that were working you know at long distances from the initial explosion site right so it's kind of like if you light like gasoline on fire and it just goes mm-hmm. and lights the whole right. line of it on and, fire. And they have no clue what's coming. Right. Blown out shots caused many accidents and were especially bad when they touched off a secondary explosion off the surrounding coal dust. Many accidents occurred during shot firing. And this was an extremely dangerous job. In fact, it was the most dangerous job to have in the mines. Okay. So that was a brief <laughs> mining history in Oklahoma. 
Now, let's talk about one of these mining disasters okay. that's happened. One of the worst mining disasters in Oklahoma history occurred on January 7th, 1892 in Krebs at the Osage Coal and Mining Company's Mine Number 11. The explosion occurred shortly after 5 p.m. on Thursday evening, and the Osage Coal and Mining Company's Number 11 mine was nearly a nonstop operation. So... They had day workers. They had night workers. So the day workers were so insane to think that they're working in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. Right. But I guess if you're underground, you probably just don't even. Oh, maybe it's probably cooler. The day workers were just beginning their ascent out of the mines to go home with about 400 men still in the mine waiting for the 470 foot ride to the top of the mine shaft. A steel cage pulled up to the surface by a powered winch lifted the men up six at a time, and it had already brought up about, like, I think 30 men at this point. The end of the shift would clear the mine and allow for blasting. So whether he was uh, inexperienced or just eager to start his um, duties, a miner began work while men from the um, previous shift were still in the mine, which was a violation oh of gosh. guidelines. Yeah. Some reports say someone placed a small explosive charge near a bed of coal and hurriedly set it off, and the charge was set too soon and had been improperly set. the The charge didn't just light the explosives; it also set off a chemical chain reaction, igniting trapped methane, methane gas and coal dust. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. It gets... This is horrible. Six men who had just um, gotten into the the cage and was being hoisted up to the surface when the explosion occurred. This explosion hurled the 3,000-pound cage and threw it up the shaft, which, again, was 470 feet. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And above ground... I don't like this. And shot it up above ground at least 100 more feet. Oh. A flash fire filled the mine's passages while flames shot up the shaft and above the ground at least 100 feet. The roar of the explosion could be heard for miles around and shook the neighboring country violently as flames just like expelled out of the mine's openings. Moments later, burned and mangled miners began crawling out of the mine's smoking um, air shafts. One source said that one miner climbed the 470-foot mine shaft despite having a broken leg and severe burns. No, 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 no. The news of the disaster spread very quickly, and um, like thousands of frightened women and children gathered at mine number 11, probably to check on their loved ones. Right. A few more survivors were found. However, 100 men and boys lost their lives some were just nothing more than body parts others were so badly burned or were too badly burned to be recognized and this just drowned the community of Krebs in in mourning oh my gosh no hospitals were in the area there were only two or three doctors one source said that more than 200 men had been injured and some of these injured men held on for as long as 18 days before succumbing to their injuries 18 days Mm -hmm. like they were trapped well i don't know if they were i don't know if they were trapped or if they were had been rescued and were on convalescent somewhere and just 
oh my gosh you know died from their injuries oh but one of the first to view the gory results of the explosion was peter hanrity one of the first miners in oklahoma and he later became a union leader and the state's first mine inspector one source described the scene left by the blast as hellish <laughs> one report stated that quote the foot of the shaft is one mass of dead bodies and another oh reporter I know it's just crazy another reported that quote limbs arms and headless bodies were Ooh. stacked in a pile and only five out of 24 which had been the number of bodies <laughs> found up to that point could be identified so only five out of 24 up to that point could be identified oh my gosh oh my gosh oh, my gosh. oh it's gonna get worse I'm what? sorry what? I'm really sorry Six small boys who attended the fans were mutilated so badly that their own parents could not even recognize them and they would be buried side by side. Some of the dead were buried individually. Many others whose bodies were never identified were put in a mass grave. Oh my gosh. Miners came from as far as Lahaye, or I'm sorry, Lahaye, maybe 50 miles away to act as emergency workers and they would help carry the injured um minors to company houses and private residences that kind of served as a makeshift hospital the disaster was the third worst in american history at the time oh my gosh so there was two more worse than that Mm -hmm. and so now a little bit of the aftermath so following the krebs disaster the residents of indian territory demanded that a federal mine inspector be appointed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Congress had passed an act in 1891, which remember, this happened in 1892. So Congress had passed an act in 1891 creating the post, but the Harrison administration never filled the position. This development didn't really reduce accidents as the inspector mainly just chronicled disasters, not like really rather on how to prevent them. So on December 1st, 1904, operators met with the federal mine inspector and adopted guidelines regulating shot firing. However, for the most part, these rules that were put into place were ignored due to a lack of an enforcement procedure. So basically, they put rules into place, but never had anyone to make sure that they were being followed. Nice. Or I should say they they didn't have anyone in place that cared enough to make sure that the rules were being followed. Because again, it's still about the profit, not the safety. Tale as old as time, I think. They probably thought that if they said that they had all these kind of rules and guidelines in place, that it would kind of pacify the miners yeah. and the Yeah, it would and appease the union. them and their, desi- their de- mm-hmm. demands. Right. Makes, okay, yeah, yeah. And so strict regulation would only come when Oklahoma gained statehood. <laughs> so that's three more years to this so anyway oklahoma's coal mines were notorious for their high concentration of explosive methane so high that many mines often had to be closed due to the presence of gas basically the mines were gassy and (laughs) (laughs) i knew you were gonna laugh at that um basically the mines were gassy and ventilation wasn't what it needed to be if there was any at all i was gonna say it would be in my mind, it's hard to regulate ventilation. I mean, it's not like you could just draw a bunch, drill a bunch of holes mm-hmm. into the earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Many of the mine inspector's reports were comments like, quote, ventilation bad in this place, and, quote, bad condition, not sufficient ventilation. Eventually, government regulations and union pressure forced mine operators to install exhaust fans, which did help. Mine inspectors had the authority to collect fines, but penalties for violating federal ventilation regulations certainly provided little incentive (laughs) for mine operators to comply with the law. One source said that the violation was, quote, not to exceed $500. And with fines so light, operators had little motivation to even comply. They didn't care. Yeah, like, what's $500 to them? Exactly. Eventually, strict enforcement of mining laws lessened the dangers of the occupation. But at the same time, the United Mine Workers continued to press for improved safety in the mines. So basically, it was the mine workers who really were like, going for more safety and they just kept pushing and pushing which i think is great and i, mm-hmm. I it's horrible that it took so long right for them no. to get you know that make yeah the safety that they needed slowly mine operators improved ventilation they installed water sprinklers and implemented the practice of spreading inert rock dust throughout the mine all of which reduced the likelihood of disastrous explosions mining officials found that shale dust was an especially effective fire retardant. The shell dust would be piled on elevated planks in the mine, and an explosion shock wave would knock the dust into the air, stopping the advance of um, flames that would follow. So now I want to talk about a memorial. Donnelly Boatwright, a third-generation former coal miner, and some of his friends decided that they wanted to make sure that the people who lost their lives in this Krebs mining disaster in 1860 I almost said 1872. (laughs) In 1892, um, they wanted to make sure that they would never be forgotten. And because they said that a lot of people there don't even know that there was a mine that had been there. Now, this was in 2002 as well. So the Osage Coal and Mining Company number 11 mine was closed in 1905. Uh, There is no sign that the mine was even there. And in fact, as of 2002, it was an overgrown thicket. And so Boatwright and his friends raised about $12,000 and had received donations of labor and materials to build a memorial. Okay. The memorial is a tall gray granite marker displaying all the names of those that were killed on that day. Mm -hmm. And it was built at the site of the mine. So the memorial is located two and a half blocks north of the Krebs School. And it's been... 131 years since that tragic mining disaster in Krebs. And so I believe that's it. <laughs> oh, wow. Interesting. So that what is, is mining in Oklahoma? And coal mining specifically in Oklahoma. Coal mining. Yeah. And I could have gone into so much more detail. And if you guys liked coal mining, I can talk about it again in a different episode. But um, that was a brief, brief interesting wow coal mining history i feel like i kind of flew through that but um yeah oh my gosh oh it just uh, i can't even imagine like having such a dangerous job where you like any chance of day you could that might be your day you meet your maker like it just wow it's terrifying i know so Kudos to all you coal miners out there, man. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, okay, well, I 
Mine is nowhere near. <laughs> um, I, I would say it's less dramatic, but it's dramatic in a different way. Uh-huh. Tensions in Russia, we know, have been heating up. Yes. Um, there was an attempted coup. I don't know how what has happened since then, mm-hmm. but um, I know like last week or the week before something, there was like an attempted coup and mm. like they were storming Moscow. I think oh, they're wow. called the Wagoneers or something like that or Wagoners. You know, Vladimir Putin had to be like evacuated to like Siberia or something. So and plus with everything going on with them thinking that they need to take over Ukraine, um, I just thought it would be interesting for mm-hmm. us to kind of look into the Cold War. Okay. And how the Cold War was perceived in the state of Oklahoma. All right. Let's do it. You and I were both alive during the ending of the Cold War. Yes. So, um, but I can assure, like, I don't ever remember, quote, being in the Cold War. Right. Like, I mean, it never... I never knew that we were in a, a said Cold War. I did I mean, the most I rem- I mean, I remember watching the news when the Berlin Wall was. That's exactly. Down. That's about the only thing I remember too is seeing news clips of the mm-hmm. wall coming down. And then, uh, because I grew up in Mustangs, so when we went on field trips, we would go to the. Um, it was called the Omniplex. It is now called mm-hmm. the Oklahoma Science Museum, but I will forever call it the Omniplex. I love the Omniplex. <laughs> um, and then they had they have a large portion of the Berlin Wall there. And um, so many Oklahomans have seen Mm -hmm. that big portion of it. So that was about my extent of knowledge about the Cold War in Mm -hmm. Oklahoma. And I know that you can drive by places and you can see fallout shelters. And I remember there was one in Wheatland, Oklahoma, because we used to always drive through it to go to Oklahoma City. And I remember asking my parents, like, what is that? And then my parents had told me that those buildings were fallout shelters. Um, because my, you know, our parents were definitely alive during right. some of the very, very heated parts. Right. So uh, my sources were there is a book, an entire book dedicated to Cold War in Oklahoma, called Cold War Oklahoma by Landry Brewer. I also looked, um, read an article called The Real Reason the U.S. Put Cold War Missiles in Oklahoma by Kelso from Z94.com. So the first thing I want to do is I wanted to read a few paragraphs from the introduction of the actual book, Cold War, Oklahoma, for you guys. So bear with me on this. The Cold War was frightening. For decades, Americans feared that civilization would be gone with the wind of a nuclear cataclysm if the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union got hot. Immediately acquainted with the destructive capabilities of wind, Oklahoma felt the fear. Lulled by a sense of complacency that follows victory, post-war Americans wanted to return to normalcy after World War II ended. But the United States, long a country that valued the safety and security of two friendly neighbors to the north and south and two oceans to the east and west, providing a buffer between it and any would-be adversaries, found itself in a new role, leader of the free world. On the other side of this bipolar struggle was the Soviet Union, the original Red Menace that had enslaved first its own people under communism rule and then millions more in Eastern Europe as it spread its influence and forced communism on those people the Nazis had conquered just a few years earlier. 
believing that Joseph Stalin had replaced Adolf Hitler as the mustachioned madman bent on the dominance of Europe and the world, and with the British and other Western Europeans lacking the means and opportunity to stop the Soviet leader, the United States stepped in. As the only nation in the world economically and militarily capable of stopping the Soviet Union from expanding its territory and influence, American foreign policy in the late 1940s became increasingly interventionist. That's kind of just like sets the tone yeah. for everything. Um in 1961, the Cold War hadn't reached its midpoint. In a speech to the United Nations that year, President Kennedy said, every man, woman, and child lives under a nuclear sword of Damocles. I hope I said that right. Hanging by the slenderest of threads, capable of being cut at any moment by accident or miscalculation or by madness. That danger was as real for Oklahoma as it is for the rest of the nation in some ways more so. From Enid to McAllister, from Tulsa to Atlas, from Elk City to Oklahoma City, Oklahomans did their part to keep themselves, their families, and their fellow citizens safe. From building missile sites to digging fallout shelters and from serving in the military to serving in the government, Oklahomans fought that long twilight struggle when the fate of the world hung in the air. Wow. So, um... Let's just go over the origins okay. of the Cold War. The U.S. and the Soviet Union were allies during World War II, yet became enemies as soon as, as early as 1945. During the Yalta Con Conference in February of 1945, this is three months before the end of World War II, the U.S., the United Kingdom, and um, the Soviet Union, so think of these leaders, Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin mm -hmm. agreed to the post-war arrangement of Europe. We knew we were winning. Mm -hmm. uh, the Soviet Union joined. The Soviet Union would join the fight against Japan to gain control of Eastern Europe, only if it allowed free elections. This was a stipulation by the United Kingdom and the United States. Okay. Stalin agreed to this. Okay. But quote. Never accepted the Western interpretation of the Yalta Agreement. Oh, man. That is so, like, oh, man. If that just doesn't just say USSR, I don't know what does. So, okay, the U.S. then dropped two atomic bombs on Japan in August of 1945. Shortly after this, Japan surrenders, and that is what effectively ended World War II. At this point, the relationship between the United States, United Kingdom team, and the USSR had already begun to, begun to worsen. Mm. Winston Churchill, he gives his famous Iron Curtain speech in mm -hmm. March of 1946 in Fulton, Missouri, right after this all happens. By 1947, the USSR was attempting to collect Greece with sites on Turkey. British aid was to be removed because mm -hmm. they were kind of helping combat the communism mm -hmm. and replaced with American aid to prevent this from happening. This is what is believed to be the beginning of America's attempt to stop communism from spreading. This whole thing was now deemed a conflict, mm -hmm. nicknamed the Cold War by columnist Walter Lippmann. Europe was on the brink of economic collapse, especially Western Europe, which was run by the U United States, the United mm -hmm. Kingdom, and France. But you have to think, the United Kingdom and France were completely war-torn nations. Right. I mean, they were 
they were frontliners, essentially. So they introduced the Marshall Plan or European Recovery Program. And this was essentially to prevent the collapse of Eastern Europe, which would have in turn Mm -hmm. really collapsed probably the rest of the world economically. Um, After World War II, it's not... I mean, everyone knows that Europeans, they were starving, they were unhoused, they were unemployed, and they were simply exhausted. Oh, yeah. So um, in 1947, Congress passed the National Security Act, which brought all military branches under one Department of Defense, under one Secretary of Defense. This created the National Security Council, the CIA, and the United States Air Force. Okay. In 1948, Stalin established a blockade, to prevent the Western powers from entering the city of Berlin. He did not want their aid anymore. Mm. But it was called off in 1949 because the U.S., not ever backing down, uh, simply decided that instead of delivering their aid packages via train, truck, or boat, they would just drop them from airplanes. (laughs) In addition, NATO was born to help reestablish European countries and prevent aggressions against them. During this time period, September of 1949, radioactivity is discovered in the North Pacific Ocean. Mm. Scientists from the United States confirmed that the USSR had detonated an atomic bomb there. Oh. This was shocking because we were foolishly, I would say, under the presumptions that we were the only country capable of having atomic power. Aye, aye, aye. So, of course, knowing now that the Soviet Union has the power, this amplifies those tensions and fears because now we're not the only ones. Mm -hmm. In October of 1949, the Chinese Civil War ends with the Chinese choosing communism. Mm. And this was a real hit to democratic societies since China boasted the second largest population of people on Earth. Mm. In January of 1950, there were plans to begin developing a hydrogen or thermonuclear bomb, um, a.k.a. the Manhattan Project. Oh, wow. And there's a shout out. There's a movie getting ready to come out focused on the scientist Oppenheimer. Oh. It's called Oppenheimer about the development of the Manhattan Project. Interesting. Uh, During this period of time, the National Security Council paper number 68 or NSC 68 told President Truman that the USSR would be our equal equals bomb-wise by 1954. Oh, wow. The government needed U.S. citizens to view the Cold War now as a real war. war. Mm-hmm. This became more apparent when North Korea invaded South Korea in 1950. The U.S. fought with South Korea to keep communism out. Of course, this leads to the 1960s, where another war to stop the spread of communism began, which was Vietnam. The U.S. and the USSR reached the brink of nuclear war many times through this 40-year period. Um, We struggled to outpace each other in all areas of life, not just military or nuclear-wise through the 70s and 80s, but most all of us can probably recall... Olympics. It doesn't seem like much has changed. No, and still, still, I mean, I... you. As, you know, as a blue-blooded American, uh-huh. when we're in the Olympics and you see those Russians, we're like, oh, I don't care who we lose against. We have to beat them. Right. I mean, and that's probably because, you know, we are both children of the 80s and that great, you know, hockey match uh-huh. went down where it was these professional Russian hockey players against these college athlete, American <laughs> athletes and 
We stumped them. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole movie about it, right? All right. So let's talk about some missiles in the okay. Oklahoma. Oklahoma is mostly known for its missile capabilities yes. during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So when the government set to begin developing intercontinental ballistic missiles, or ICBMs, in the 1950s, the first were housed here in the great state of Oklahoma. Uh Southwest Oklahoma was chosen as an Atlas Missile Silo congregation because the loss of life in the event of a nuclear strike would be far less than in our country's biggest cities. We were literally nuclear attack fodder as much as we were a deterrent. That's just... It's very sad. It, it, it is, because it's like, oh, it's like one of those things like, well, if you could save like one group of people that had like 10 people, or you could save a group of people that had two. Right. Which would you save? Absolutely. And Absolutely. It, you would do the one with the most, because... Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gosh, so, it's like a double-edged sword. Exactly. So Atlas missiles would be housed at Altus. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to say Atlas and Altus at the same time. Mm-hmm. Altus Air Force Base in Altus, Oklahoma. There were 12 missile sites which were located near Altus. Lone Wolf, Snyder, Cash, Fredericks, Fargo, Texas, Crata, Hollis, Russell, Willow, Hobart, Manito, and Granite. At all times, B-52 bombers Mm -hmm. were monitoring the sky, readying themselves to bomb the Soviet Union if called to. These missions lasted 24 hours. So literally, you'd go up, you would monitor for your 20 hours, and then you would go and land. And once one group was finished and landed, the next would take off. Gosh, that sounds awful, to be honest. Right. In May of 1960, there was a mock attack mock attack of the u.s and oklahoma did participate in it they did or didn't did okay sorry it what's interesting is my mother was born in june of 1960 in oklahoma uh-huh. and so to think of our grandmother like huge and pregnant uh-huh. and having to participate in this mock attack oh gosh was probably, did you call her and ask her no i it? should have but it was probably it was probably just so annoying oh i can't even imagine right september 26th of 1960 Uh, John F. Kennedy visited Oklahoma to talk about electronic and missile building during his campaign for presidency. Okay. Unfortunately, on the day of his visit, the first death during construction of the missile sites was reported. Oh, no. And it was the electrocution of Otis S. Hobson. And then again, on December 28th of 1960, Warren Neil Willis fell from a missile silo he was helping to build. Oh, what an awful death. Oh, for sure. By 1961, most Americans started building fallout shelters. In October of 1962, the year my father was born. Uh, Question, question. Um, Do you know what would be the difference? Maybe you you don't know. Between a fallout shelter and, like, say, a tornado shelter. We'll get into that. Okay. Yeah, we'll get into it. All right. In October of 1962, the year and month my father was born, (laughs) the U.S. discovers placement of Soviet Union nuclear missiles 90 miles from Florida. This was known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. So two months prior, the first Atlas missile was put on alert at Altus Air Force Base. By October, the remaining 11 were put on standby. So here we are in Oklahoma with 12 nuclear missiles on standby. Oh, my gosh. All pointed towards Cuba and Russia. Oh, my goodness. 
At this time, we developed an emergency siren system to tell residents what to do. Um, there would be there were two different blasts okay. that you had to listen for. The first blast would be a, a pair of siren blasts, each lasting three minutes, tells residents to monitor your TV or radio for news. If you didn't hear that one and you heard a continual blast, it meant danger was coming to seek shelter immediately. Oh, my goodness. How awful. Like, you have to worry about that. You have to worry about tornadoes. You have to worry about, oh, good right. grief. The Cuban Missile Crisis was peacefully resolved. However, it was then discovered right after it was solved that there was a liquid nitrogen tank near the cash missile that was leaking. Oh, gosh. So, of course, residents see this happening, and now they're like, oh, my gosh, the missiles are on fire. Right. In May, on May 14th of 1964, a missile housed at the Frederick site exploded <gasps> with no injuries, uh, but the nuclear warhead was not dead. Nated, and so it was unaffected, so there was no nuclear fallout to Good that. Good grief. I can't even... That just gives me anxiety right, thinking about right. it. And then in March 25th on 1965, the Strategic Missile Squadron was deactivated. All sites were sold, and currently all sites in Oklahoma are owned by private citizens. So... And I have... You can get on Zillow, and uh -huh. you can find a ton of... Like, Oklahoma wasn't the only state that had missile sites, right. but you can find a ton of them for sale. I've and seen people, people who've made homes yeah, out of them. Yeah, they converted homes into them. And, like, I've even seen where, you know, they're like, this is the mission. Here's the button that right. they would push, you know? In the book, if you wanted to read the Cold War Oklahoma book, there's a whole chapter dedicated to a missile technician's experience. Uh -huh. um, it's fascinating what these people had to go through the stress would just be unknown. Oh, man, I can't even um, imagine what their blood pressure was like. Exactly. Because at any moment, they themselves could were a target and could be killed, or they were going to be responsible for killing loads of people. Oh, man. Um, I, I don't know how you'd have be able to have that, like, burden right. on your shoulders. The author actually interviewed Jerry Burns. Um, he was a ballistic missile analysis or analyst technician at Altus Air Force Base uh -huh. and kind of got his experience from it. Oh, interesting. The like I mentioned, the Frederick site explosion. There's actually audio available from the actual explosion that you can access and find on the Atlas Missile Silo site oh website and you can listen to it. Um, the book also goes into uh, the author's mission to preserve these missile sites as legacies and history in mm -hmm. Oklahoma. But this also created civil defense. And mm -hmm. I didn't know what civil defense was prior to going into this. Yeah, I don't um, think I've heard that. But I'll before. definitely, um, let me tell you what it is. Every community had to create a plan to protect the public from nuclear war. So the Federal Civil Defense Act of 1950 created a three-staged shelter program. So the civil defense was just put in place to defend civilians. Mm -hmm. So in 1950, the government wanted to locate existing shelters because there were many bomb shelters built during the 1940s mm -hmm. because of World War II. Right. And so they needed to locate those, upgrade them, and then construct new shelters in areas where there weren't any. Mm -hmm. This goes makes me think of the Blast from the Past Brendan Fraser movie when... I believe it's on that mock day uh -huh. that they go underground uh -huh. believing and then, you know, 25 or 30 years later, they emerge. Oh. And have you seen that movie? I don't know if I have or oh not. Oh, my gosh. It's good. You should see it. Um, Alicia Silverstone is in it, too. Oh, yeah. But, um, like, they emerge 
after I don't remember how long, maybe it was 30 years, I don't know, they emerge and come to find out it was just a mock, you know, it was just a mock explosion day oh, wow. and they thought it was real and they spent their 30 years yeah. in their fallout shelter and when they came out, like, they expected to see a wasteland. Oh, man. And that's not what they saw, of course. Oh, wow. So they saw 1990s America. <laughs> so... um. I, ha- I talk a lot about fallout shelters. Uh-huh. The fallout spread is actually a very serious condition. And it is actually probably when you think about atomic, the atomic bombs and like mm-hmm. Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Yeah. Like the fallout is really what was probably the worst. Mm-hmm. Fallout is the nuclear or radioactive dust that results when a nuclear bomb explodes. It's literally dust, so it can spread miles and miles away from the actual bomb site and affect people. And so that's what people were mostly afraid of. Um, It was difficult to get President Eisenhower on board to fork over the money needed to create a nationwide fallout shelter plan. So, you know, to see how Americans respond, they had that mock attack in May of 1960 and it really acted as a way to get the public and the president behind creating more shelters um, when they did the mock attack, it was discovered that only 10% of Altus's residents would survive. And it was even smaller for surrounding areas, mm. uh, survival rates. So it's kind of a wake-up call. Right. In 1961, President Kennedy supported civil defense requests and created an Office of Civil Defense to begin the three-stage shelter plan, which we had talked about before. Mm-hmm. That was created in 1950 but didn't go anywhere right so it's really interesting we're going to go kind of backwards now it so that you know that in 1950 the civil defense act was created it wasn't really put into place until 1961 but in 1951 oklahoma a&m which is now oklahoma state Uh was the first school in the united states to teach civil defense courses oh interesting it was two weeks long it cost 18 dollars oh wow And it taught health, welfare, rescue, police, firefighting, and other services that civilians may need to know Uh in case of a nuclear fallout. Uh, The Federal Civil Defense Administration actually closed the program in 1952. However, Oklahoma's state civil defense reopened right back up. Mm. So by 1957, classes were then offered to women, allowing them to take the courses and really to focus on rescue work. Oh, interesting. So... Let's say you have a fallout shelter. Okay. You got to stock it. Um, To stock fallout shelters, supplies were needed, and people could find the shelters and necessary supplies by looking for those three yellow triangles in the black circle. I went to Oklahoma State, and there are still, to this day, or there was when I was there, Mm -hmm. there were still buildings that had that placard on it with the three yellow triangles in the black circle, knowing that's a fallout shelter. Now, you mentioned before, what about tornado shelters? I believe 90% of all fallout shelters also were used as tornado shelters as well. Most of them are now. Most of them are now for sure. Uh, Most of them were built Mm -hmm. with the capabilities of being able to also withstand tornadoes. I mean. So in Oklahoma, it was a twofer. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, I'm talking, hearing you talk about it. (laughs) They were like the first doomsday preppers. You know right, what I mean? Right. right. OSU was. Stillwater actually gave supplies to the volunteers who created the shelters at their homes. Stillwater had a lot. I mean, their public was 
you know, mm-hmm. educated in how to do it. So they had right. a large population of people who would have these. They were given water barrels, carbohydrate supplements, survival crackers, sanitation kits. Wow. Um, in order to be deemed a public fallout shelter, you had to be able to hold at least 50 people okay. and include one cubic foot of storage space per person, plus have a radiation protection factor of at least 100. I tried to find out exactly what that meant. Uh-huh. I looked all up radiation protection factors. It was a lot of jargon that I don't understand. <laughs> so I'm not even going to pretend to try to explain that to you, what it means. Yeah. I'm assuming it has to be able to protect like 100 parts per billion, per million, something of uh-huh. radiation. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Someone can educate me on that because it was really hard for me to understand. In January of 1962, the government published a book guiding citizens on the different acceptable fallout shelter construction plans. The government did? Yes. Okay. Yes. So um, at this point, you know, Kennedy is in office. He supports this. Mm-hmm. And so they're offering guides on how the regular American can just create their own. The smallest would accommodate three people and it costs Americans $75 to build. Mm-hmm. The largest would accommodate 10 people, costing $110. Most homeowners were responsible for constructing their own shelters. Okay. Again, we'll go back to October of 1962. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, citizens were told instantly they had to be vigilant. They had to be on guard. They had to be ready. Unfortunately, (laughs) Elk City residents received the scare of a lifetime during this period when their emergency alert siren malfunctioned and produced a false alarm. Oh, no. So this is definitely giving that blast from the past movie vibes. Uh (laughs) Maybe it took place in Elk City. I don't think it did, but it definitely (laughs) could have. This scare resulted in near panic conditions. I can't even imagine. So um, it was probably another good practice in hindsight. I don't know, but that would be it would be terrifying. Oh, yeah. Heck, yeah, it would. Um, In fact, today, most of you have probably visited several fallout shelters or former fallout shelters. The Oklahoma Capitol building is one of them. Oh. It has several of them inside. The basement is considered one. The cafeteria and there are other areas that are located in there because they had a lot of people that they wanted to be able to protect. It was said at one point that there was roughly between 800 to 1,000 public shelters in the state of Oklahoma. Oh, that's interesting. Which we needed a lot. We had 12 missile sites. (laughs) Right. In the 1960s, classes now were starting to be offered at many other state universities. They continued at Oklahoma State. Southwestern OSU got into there. Chanute High School even started having classes. Um, They had a family survival course for their students to take. Okay. Food guidelines were established in the event of fallout and sheltering. Uh, initially, they said that people needed to consume 1,500 calories per day, but then it was lowered significantly to 700 because they encouraged people to be sedient. <laughs> 700 calories. <laughs> we would starve. Yeah, Americans like, would starve. Oklahomans would starve. Just hearing that makes me hungry. <laughs> <Right>. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, we just wait. Your water allotment per day, allotment per day was one quart. <gasps> what? I know. You get one quart of water a day. Uh, food and water barrels had to have a shelf life of five to ten years. And the water barrels, they stored mass amounts of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, medical kits were provided inside your shelters. They included 
all sorts of medications, dressings, and other things that you might need. Uh-huh. So by 1964, Oklahoma had 600,000 marked fallout shelters, public and private. Wow. That's a lot. Well, but you have to also think that I'm sure a lot of people were like, well, this is my tornado shelter too. So 600,000? Okay. After President Kennedy was assassinated, funding for civil defense started to decline. Many believed that the lack of funding would actually move the U.S. into war since we were, quote, suddenly unprepared. So people were really upset about this lack of funding, but other presidents did not feel the need to fund it like Kennedy did. Of course, in the book, you can read about the author's memories um, growing up in Cold War America. I mean, you and I could definitely ask our parents. They Uh grew up in the midst of it. Right. And like, you know, we both... Our only memories are like the wall coming down. Right. But it's just, it's interesting because it's not that far removed. Right. It really isn't. Right. Um, But it is at the same time. Yeah. It feels like a million years ago. Right. It does. Due to World War II, there was a rise in the creation of military bases all over the United States. And this, of course, included Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. So towards the end of World War II, and the beginning of the Cold War, we even got even more military bases. And I don't even list all of the ones on Oklahoma, but some that really were uh, prevalent during that ending of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War were Tinker Air Force Base in Midwest mm-hmm. City, Vance Air Force Base in Enid, Clinton-Sherman Air Force Base in Burns Flat, the U.S. Army Ammunition Plant in McAllister, mm-hmm. Fort Sill in Lawton, which Fort Sill had been there for 100, you know, yeah. 100 years prior, if not more. And then, of course, Altus Air Force Base in Altus. It goes into a chapter of two key Cold War Oklahomans. Okay. And I wanted to briefly kind of talk about them. You and I are probably familiar. I think most Oklahomans are familiar with both of them. Okay. Um, Carl Albert. Oh, The first one. He uh, ran for Congress in 1946 while the Cold War was heating up. Mm -hmm. He was actually elected the same class as John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. Um, He was really instrumental in helping Congress address the Cold War needs. He held conferences with all sorts of presidents to talk to them about, Mm -hmm. you know, Cold War and what what are the citizens feeling? What are we what do we need to do for them? And then the other one was Thomas P. Stafford. He um, and if you're not familiar with him. You also are from Eastern Oklahoma. Western Oklahoma people say, are got, cheering for his name. I, I promise. don't I don't recognize the name. He was a pilot for the United States Air Force who was then picked up by NASA. Okay. And he was an astronaut for the Apollo and Gemini missions. Uh, okay. He played a pivotal role in the space race during the Cold War. Uh-huh. In fact, he came within 100 miles of landing on the moon. He was on the Apollo 10 mission. Mm-hmm. They were unable to land. It was actually the Apollo 11 mission that landed on the moon. So he was also a member of the Apollo Soyuz. It's Russian. I'm not quite sure if that's how you pronounce it. Soyuz test where he and other astronauts met a Soviet cosmonaut in space. Um, This is said to be the event that ended the space race between the U.S. and the USSR. Interesting. So, um, oh, I wanted to read another page from... Uh, the book is page 100. Let me find it. Had a really good quote about these two men. Carl Albert and Thomas P. Stafford each strove for excellence in his chosen field at a critical time for the country and the world. 
Albert helped guide the government in its military and foreign policy decisions, and during domestic and international crises when peace could easily have become war with the Soviet Union, a frightening prospect in the nuclear age. Stafford reached for the moon and stars and hit his mark at a time when we raced against the Soviets to be the first to conquer the final frontier of space. Mm. So it's just two yeah. great Oklahomans who really left their mark because of Cold War. Yeah. Oklahoma. Now, let's talk about a not so great Oklahoman. Uh-oh. I had not heard of this person. Okay. I, I'm interested to know if you have. Okay. Maurice Halpern. Not ringing okay. the bell. This person was completely unknown to me. Albert and Stafford are well-known Oklahomans for their roles that they played in World War II. During the Cold War, they're just Oklahoma heroes for sure. Okay. Yep. Not Halpern. Um, here's he, a brief history about I was him. say, what did he do? Oh, girl. Here's a brief history about him before we dive in. He graduated from Harvard. Okay. Then went to OU and got his master's degree. Okay. Um, he also was an OU professor during the 1930s and 40s. Okay. He fell under suspicion by the state of Oklahoma government because he appeared to be sympathetic to communist ideas. And this is in the 1930s and 40s. Once he fell under this suspicion, he left OU and got a job with the federal government wartime intelligence agency during World War II. Still, he's under suspicion. He eventually uh-huh. flees the United States oh, never to return. Good gravy. There's a lot happens between him fleeing the United States and this suspicion. So at the end of the Cold War, evidence emerged showing that Halpern was a covert Oklahoma communist in the 1930s. He even made a trip to Cuba, which was later discovered to be funded by the Communist Party. It was discovered that in the 1940s, he committed espionage for the USSR. He was a traitor. He was a traitor. He was a spy. Accused in 1939 of being a spy because he sold Soviet bonds after the Nazi Soviet pact, after it kind of, I guess, crumbled or something. But all of a sudden, his bank account received lots of money. Oh, man. The bank notified the FBI instantly and the University of Oklahoma, which I think is weird that it notified his workplace. Yeah. Well, maybe to, like, hey, professors don't make this much, right? Right. <laughs> right. So during this time, he was, he was teaching at OU. He was accused of teaching communist ideology. This is in 1939. Okay. He was subpoenaed and asked what communist ties he had. He denied all of them or of any. Of course he did. Even when they brought up this trip to Cuba where communist papers, he, he was given those. There were members that were present. He denied. He's not a, he was not a communist. In 1941, he was recommended for firing from OU, but he left before that happened, gaining employment with the Office of Strategic Service, the predecessor to the CIA. If he was under suspicion, how in the world did he gain that kind of position? Probably because the state government wasn't talking to the federal government is what I'm going to assume. The left hand wasn't talking to the right. In 1946, he was singled out as a possible communist in that that office of strategic service when he suddenly left to represent the American Jewish Conference to the United Nations. He was representative. During this time, Halpin read in a newspaper that he was facing espionage charges 
from the Office of Strategic Services. Now, when we look back on it, we need to place blame probably on their laxity. Yeah. There were many other true, true spies that were kept in government jobs at this time. And this laxity is what later resulted in the Red Scare witch hunt led by none other than J. Edgar Hoover. Oh. So it was almost like if you were accused of being a communist in the 1930s and 1940s, it was no big deal. Mm -hmm. You still kept your job. You got another job. You got a better job. You know, as we can just see with Halpern here. However, in the 1950s, that was not the case. Yeah. So... 1953, he's left this office. He's no longer a representative for the American Jewish Conference. He starts to work at Boston University. Halpern was subpoenaed again. These hearings were actually for several professors where every single one of them asserted their Fifth Amendment, which is their right. Yeah. But at the same time, doesn't make you look super innocent. Uh Uh-huh. He was working at the time for the Senate Internal Security Subcommission, or he wasn't working there. That's who he was subpoenaed by. This is what um, McCarthyisms were kind of started here. Okay. In March of 1953, he testified before the Senate International Security Subcommission. He was asked if he had been a member of the Communist Party and if he had engaged in any kind of espionage activity that former Soviet spy turned informant (laughs) Elizabeth Bentley had accused him of to the FBI and the HAUC, as well as being asked about his political activities at the University of Oklahoma, his Cuba trip, the Soviet bond purchase and other matters. Halpern generally invoked the Fifth Amendment, though he did assert that he did not commit espionage. Liar! Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, other admitted spies that the U.S. had gotten a hold of during this time period confessed that Halpern was indeed a communist. Uh In fact, he was accredited as being the Texas-Oklahoma communist representative for the Communist Party of the U.S. Jeez. Was there Um, one for every state? I I don't know. Oklahoma and Texas shared one, so probably not one for every state, but I don't know. In November of 1953, President Eisenhower's Attorney General Herbert Brownell testified to that Senate Internal Security Subcommittee. A reading on November of 1945 letter from J. Edgar Hoover to President Truman. This is what the letter said. I'm reading it uh, from page 109. Quote, identifying a spy ring that has been functioning in Washington during the war. End quote. The substance of the letter came from a deposition provided to the FBI by, again, Elizabeth Bentley, and Halpern was one of the spies named. The director of the FBI, through the Attorney General of the United States, using correspondence that included the President of the United States, claimed that Maurice Halpern was guilty of espionage on behalf of the Soviet Union. Wow. So the next day, Halpern is suspended from Boston University. One week later, he and his wife flee to Mexico. He denied being a spy in 1941, again in 1942, again in 1947, and in 1953, yet in the end fled the U.S. to live in Mexico, Mm -hmm. moved to USSR, moved to Cuba, all communist countries, Mm -hmm. before eventually finally settling in Canada. And it was never told what, I, I could never find what, 
time period he settled in Canada. Mm, that's interesting. Um, so here's a kooky fact. Elizabeth Bentley, she is an infamous Soviet spy turned informant for the United States. Mm-hmm. She did admit that Halpern may not have known the info he was passing along was going to the actual Soviet Union. She said that he may have just thought it was going to the Communist Party of the U.S. Mm. Mm-hmm. In 1995, so we're going to speed up several years, okay. it was discovered, they discovered, or I don't know if they discovered it more as they admitted it, mm-hmm. something called the Venona. Okay. This is, or was, an extremely top secret American program from 1943. It was used to decipher encrypted messages sent to Soviet diplomats in the U.S. to Moscow. Since 1942, it had identified 349 resident U.S. spies. Halpern's name was on it. Oh. These messages that were that they made public in 1995. Uh-huh. So, I mean, what, 50 years, 50 plus years old, uh-huh. corroborated Elizabeth Bentley's earlier testimony of all the spies that she let loose. Man. Halpern denied espionage, I think, till his deathbed. He had a biography written about him. He denied it in the biography, even though in 1995, it was proven that he was one. His Soviet code name was Hare. It was seen in a November 25th, 1945 message. Now, you might be asking why during all of these court proceedings, did none of this stuff come up? Mm-hmm. It was because the U.S. government was unwilling to reveal the existence of the Venona to prosecutors. It was They didn't want anyone in the 1940s and 50s to know about this at all. Interesting. So prosecutors pursued cases against the spies in the 1940s and 50s without this program's information. So... They still had a ton of information, but they didn't have this, like, rock-solid information. Uh Uh, Without corroborating evidence, though, the government was often unable to bring those named to trial, much less get a guilty verdict. Four of those Bentley named did testify, denied her charges, but then put themselves beyond prosecution for perjury by leaving the United States. Halpern was one of them. Yeah, you're not guilty. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Here's a kooky fact. This is a really, really kooky fact. There are only four known pictures of Halpern in existence. Oh. He was present in zero yearbook photos from his years at OU as a student or as a faculty member. There are zero pictures of the National Archives from the Office of Strategic Services. No pictures from Boston University. And even his own biography has no pictures in it. Weird. If that doesn't say spy, I don't know what else does. Yeah, right? Um, there's even a chapter in the book Cold War Oklahoma devo- de, you know, devoted to no pictures of um, Maurice Halpern. So let's talk about the legacy okay. that the Cold War left, not only on the United States, but on Oklahoma. In 1991, the USSR officially dissolved, which essentially ended the Cold War. Mm-hmm. It lasted for 40 plus years. Mm-hmm. 
the death from Cold War activities. These are specific Oklahoma deaths. Three from the construction of missile silos near Altus. Uh, 625 in the Korean War. 987 in the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. It cost the United States roughly $5 trillion as of 1995. Um, if we were to convert that into 23, 2023, mm-hmm. roughly $10 trillion the Cold War cost us. Wow. Over a 40-plus period. So that's the Cold War in Oklahoma. I didn't realize that they included the Korean War in that. I, I guess I didn't either, but it makes sense now when you think about it. Like North Korea is a communist country, mm-hmm. um, along with China. Uh, Russia is no longer, or Russia is not a communist country, but Cuba is still communist too mm-hmm. as well. And I think those are the only three countries that I can think of that are, there may be, there's probably more, but um, those are the only three that I can think of. Everyone else is pretty much a democratic mm-hmm. society. There may be a few, um, mm-hmm. well, even monarchies, a yeah. lot of them still are democratic at the same time. So um, it was interesting. There's a lot of information in that book that I didn't even get to cover. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah. To know that really Oklahoma played a great role mm-hmm. in the Cold War. I mean, we literally were on the front line, like our first line of defense right. for several years. How scary it could have been. No kidding. Um, you know, my, my father was in the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. especially during the height of the 80s. Mm-hmm. And he did participate in Cold War type events mm-hmm. um, where he, you know, he fought and that kind of stuff. So... It's just, it's fascinating. It's scary, Yeah, I think. Yeah. But I do think it's, it's scary in the fact that it's almost like we're going back mm-hmm. to that or we could be going back or what, I mean, I don't know what's going on. What's mm-hmm. going on with Russia right now, but um, without getting super political and stuff. But yeah, I thought it was, it's interesting history yeah. for our state. No, it and is. And the dark part of it was that we had our own hmm I know. Our own right. spy. You're right. It is scary. But it's just, it's scary to think, like, this could be heating up again. Something right. like this could be happening again because, I don't know. Right. I mean, especially when you know people who are, For like, sure, yeah. I mean. But I thought it was fascinating. At least we yeah, have this a little bit of history. Maybe we can try to prevent things from like that from happening again. I don't know, but um, I didn't know a lot of that. That was very. I didn't either. I didn't either. I mean, granted, we grew up probably oblivious to all of it, right. and of course, you know, most of our life there has been no Cold War. So, I mean, you hear about it, but yeah, you don't really think about it. Yeah, again, if that makes sense. I know. I mean, in history class, it wasn't really covered over a lot yeah i mean it's like so, a brief like maybe a chapter over <laughs> i was trying to i was gonna say fly by but i was like that's not the right word <laughs> yeah so yeah um if you have any questions comments or show suggestions we encourage you to reach out on yeah. us we have several different ways you can email us at curious cousins okay at gmail.com you can dm us on instagram at curious cousins okay or on facebook at curious cousins okay podcast or even on twitter at curious cousins okay but remember cousins is spelled c c u z n you can also rate review and follow us on your favorite listening platform or podcast listening platform we are on google we are on stitch nope stitcher is about to 
be done for. <laughs> if you're a Stitcher listener, find us somewhere else by August 29th, I think. Um, Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, all those big ones. Uh-huh. Um, we would just love for you to become a listener and follow and just take the time to review us. We really appreciate it. Um, and if you really <laughs> want to hear more about us, you can support us on Patreon. Just look for Curious Cousins OK. And you'll find us there. $5 tier gets you extra episodes each month. Um, this this, this month was mine, and it's a part oneer <laughs> um, because I definitely bit off more than I could chew. <laughs> um, should we tell them what it was, what I've covered? If you want to. We, I, gave, you, we gave you a couple of hints. We gave you a couple of hints. Um, so we said it was not in Oklahoma and that it was a prison, and the prison that I am covering, which is going to end up being the history of the prison, and then another episode is going to be the uh, ghost of the, the said prison. <laughs> of the prison, and then there's probably going to be an entire episode dedicated to the prisoners. It's surrounded it. by water. It's surrounded <laughs> by water. It is also referred to as the Rock. It is Alcatraz. Yeah, I can't wait. Yes, I'm excited. It's ugh, it's 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 a lot. It's a lot. I'll tell you that. It's going to so, be good. Yes. So if you are interested in that, if you would like to hear that first, um, which, I mean, it will eventually be released on regular Our, podcast, yeah. but uh, we don't know when we'll release it right. on regular <laughs> podcast. But um, if you'd like to hear it first, it w- is available on Patreon. So, yeah. Jess, tell them what to keep it. Keep it kooky and spooky. Bye. Bye.